Let's turn to the speech. I'd like to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll turn it over to Professor Heisinger. Hebrews 12, we'll start at verse 1. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after our own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Professor Heisinger is going to speak to us this evening on the subject, the PRC in 2021, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Professor? Good evening, and thank you to the RFPA for inviting me to give the lecture this evening and for giving to me the freedom to select my subject, and after consultation, agreeing with me on this subject, the title of my speech is 2021 in the PRC, Whom the Lord Loveth, He Chasteneth. No one in the PRC no matter how old he or she may be, has ever lived through a year like 2021 and witnessed events like those we have witnessed in 2021. And when I speak of 2021 in the PRC tonight, I'm referring to those events that are unique to the Protestant Reformed churches. I am not referring to that scourge of God which is the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a speech on current events and the chastening hand of the Lord, and yet that scourge has no place in this speech. And that indicates that 
what does have a place in this speech is extraordinarily significant. The events to which I refer then, when I speak of 2021 in the PRC, are the following. On January 17, we were informed of the deposition of a minister for the sin of public schism. We learned that on January 19, two days later, several office bearers from the congregation and council where the minister was deposed signed an act of separation which contends contends among other things that the PRC is apostatizing. She's manifesting the marks of the false church. She shrewdly retains the name of the church and a certain form of the church deceiving the unwary. And that the undersigned are fleeing from the coming destruction and they call the congregation to come out from among the PRC and be separate. Following in the wake of these events in January were still more. On April 24, we were informed by another consistory that it had suspended its minister for insubordination and public schism. And then on May 5, that minister and a couple office bearers signed what became a second act of separation. We would come to learn that on May 16, a congregation in our sister churches in the Philippines withdrew from the Federation of the Protestant Reformed Churches in the Philippines. We learned that on July 6, the office bearers in a third Protestant Reformed congregation, minus one dissenting elder, signed a third act of separation contending that the PRC is the apostatizing church that these men and their families are fleeing from the coming judgment and taking up the work of church reformation. We learn that on July 10, the office bearers in a fourth Protestant Reformed congregation, minus one dissenting deacon, passed a motion to withdraw their church from membership in the PRCA and accordingly recommended the congregation to approve the same. And then as we gather here tonight, it is, I think, well known to all of us, especially after what was just read, that the PRC is now called a whore, and her ministers are vipers, and her ministers and elders are murderers of righteous prophets. When I speak of 2021 in the PRC, I'm referring to this separation that has occurred out of the PRC, which the PRC has frequently identified as schism, the sinful dividing of the body of Christ, and to the declarations about the PRC that she is an apostatizing church or even something worse. However, I'm not referring to the PRC or to 2021 rather, as it stands all by itself in isolation from what preceded it, but to 2021 as the climax, at least to this point in history, of years of controversy which have included mistakes in Protestant Reformed assemblies, apologies for compromising the gospel, an apology for preaching a statement containing the heresy of a conditional covenant. Unrest, long meetings, protests, heated conversations, countless hours 
of toil by consistories, thick and heavy agendas at ecclesiastical assemblies, agonizing struggles, the ripping apart of families and sometimes even marriages, and frequent groans and sighs heard throughout the churches. The PRC has, as it were, been flying through turbulence in the last five or so years. And when I refer to the PRC in 2021, I'm referring to all that turbulence and to the climax of it to this point in the rather violent shaking that is the separation out of the PRC by some on the grounds that she is incurably corrupt. Then add this to all that turbulence. On July 24, we were informed by a consistory that it had suspended its minister for sins against the Sixth and Seventh Commandments in harming young women. Is there even one? One member of the Protestant Reformed churches who has not groaned and sighed often. It doesn't matter how old you are. You have never seen events like those that have unfolded in the PRC in 2021, and the year is not even over. How shall we view and how shall we respond to all these things? The title of my speech is 2021 in the PRC, Whom the Lord Loveth, He Chasteneth. How shall we view all these things? Well, with our Reformed convictions, we begin by looking up into heaven to see by faith our great God who sits on throne, the throne above heaven and earth in His absolute sovereignty and believe He has brought all these things into our churches by His hand. Jehovah God is sovereign. By His providence, He upholds, governs, and directs everything in the universe, not only prosperity and what we find to be good to us, but adversity and what we find to be evil and distressing and even sin itself. So that while God disdains and loathes sin with all of His infinitely holy being, and He never participates in sin, in His absolute sovereignty, He ordains and governs all things including sin. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Isaiah 45 verse 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And every Reformed Christian knows the most pointed application of this truth of the absolute sovereignty of God is found in the cross and the heinous murder of the righteous prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God was there. Acts 2 verse 23 says of Jesus, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
But what is most striking about the Scripture's teaching of the absolute sovereignty of God is that the Scripture impresses this truth upon our consciousness not only with bare objective statements, but with personal confessions of faith. After the devil orchestrated all manner of evil against Job and the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans came to plunder his property, take his possessions, and kill his servants, Job made a confession of of faith and said, the Lord gave. And then he didn't say, and Satan or the Sabaeans took away, but the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Joseph's brothers, they ganged up on him and designed all manner of evil against him. And then later they were brought face to face with Joseph. And Genesis 50 verse 20 says that Joseph declared, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And then there is that well-known, striking, and even startling confession in 2 Samuel chapter 16. It's the history of Shimei who is cursing the Lord's anointed King David and casting stones at him. And Shimei said, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son, And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And what did David say? He didn't say, yes, this is what the sword is for. Go take off that cursing man's head and cut this evil out of the land. But neither did David say, go withstand him to the face and rebuke him publicly for this evil of cursing the Lord's anointed. Shimei was a scorner. And a scorner is someone who holds something or a person or people in contempt and hurls insults at them. A scorner is someone who's lost control of his spirit and therefore loses control of his tongue. Shimei is a scorner. And David had the wisdom that would later be expressed by his father Solomon in the Proverbs, and that is that a wise man does not rebuke a scorner because the scorner does not hear rebuke. Proverbs 13, verse 1. And you will get yourself shame. Proverbs 9, verse 7. And he will hate you. Proverbs 9, verse 8, so that as vile as all of the cursing as a scorner may be, it is nothing compared to what will come out of his mouth if you rebuke him. David did not say, rebuke him. He did say, let him curse. Because the Lord has said unto him, curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth out of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and let him curse. For the Lord hath bidden him. It may be 
that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against them and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came weary and refreshed themselves there. David said, let him curse. He didn't stand there and keep listening. He walked away with his men, but he said, let him curse because the Lord hath bid him. The Lord said, curse David. And if the Lord said said to him, curse David, might there be a kernel, an element of truth in that curse? The Scripture makes very plain that all this turbulence of the past years culminating in the events of 2021 is the work of God. He is not responsible for any of the sin of it, but He brought all these things, as it were, by His hand into the PRC. More specifically, God has brought all these things into the PRC in order to chasten us in love. Which is to say that God is not visiting destructive judgments upon the PRC as an apostatizing or apostate church whom He will soon destroy in His fury. And now I want to take some time to explain that negative before... I come back around to restate and explain the main positive point. The PRC is not an apostatizing denomination or something worse, but a denomination of true churches, a manifestation of the bride of Jesus Christ on earth. Like any true church or any federation of true churches, the PRC most certainly needs to be cleansed, sanctified and cleansed with a washing of water by the Word. She is not worthy of being presented unto Jesus Christ a glorious church. She has her spots and her wrinkles and her blemishes and other such things. But her spots and her wrinkles and her blemishes and other such things on her garments do not make her an apostatizing church or an apostate whore, even as the spots and wrinkles and blemishes that were found on the garments of the early Corinthian congregation in the early apostolic era did not make that church an apostatizing church or an apostate whore. Very soon after the organization, the Corinthian congregation was full of all kinds of sin. The congregation was racked with schism. There were members separating themselves according to their favorite minister, some of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos. Some wouldn't even identify with a minister, and they said we're of Christ. People were running off to the civil courts to sue each other over the pettiest matters. There was a man living right in the middle of the congregation openly and impenitently as a fornicator living with his father's wife. The Lord's Supper was being profaned. People were denying the resurrection. And Corinth was the church of God 
sanctified in Christ Jesus, worthy of rebuke, rebuked, and according to the epistle of 2 Corinthians, in many respects, corrected. The PRC, for all her spots, wrinkles, and blemishes, and other such things on her garments, is a denomination of true churches. We are being called the whore, the whore of Babylon. And don't be intimidated by that. Very likely that will continue and intensify, which means that men and women and children, young people, if they are not already, will repeat that and will probably thunder that. Little children who don't even know know what the word whore means will be declaring that the PRC is a whore and probably declared with supreme confidence and absolute certainty to make you feel like you are the biggest ignoramus who professes the name of Jesus if you do not agree that the PRC is a whore. Do not be intimidated. Do not render evil for evil. Walk away quietly. As a denomination of true churches, the PRC maintains the first mark of a true church, which is the preaching of the pure doctrine of the gospel. If you are convinced that your preacher is teaching false doctrine, or that another minister is teaching, writing false doctrine, then go to him with your concern and lay that out before him. And if that concern is not addressed, then write a protest to the man's consistory and demonstrate from the Scripture and the confessions that what is being taught is false doctrine. And if you are not heard and pleased, you have the right to cry out for help and to appeal to classes and if necessary, to synod. There may be consistories at this very moment who are dealing with such protests. But even if you can find a statement or a collection of statements, a list of statements containing false doctrine, not a list of statements you merely allege claim, allege contain false doctrine, or you claim that they contain false doctrine, though according to the Scripture and the confessions, they are not false doctrine, but you really do have a collection of objectionable statements containing false doctrine, bad as that is, it doesn't constitute the official doctrinal position of the churches. The churches have not entered into a judgment of those statements by examining them according to the standards deliberating over them and making a decision. If you believe the church must do so, then bring your grievance to the church. The official theology of the PRC is not the theology of the devil and of hell. It's the theology of Scripture and the Reformed confessions. And by the mercy of God, this has been confirmed 
through synodical decisions in this controversy. And what belongs to the significance of synodical decisions in recent history is that in answering protests, the PRC has not only set forth positively in answering various points of dispute, set forth positively what is the truth of Scripture and the confessions, but has rejected errors and threats to that truth. The charge that the PRC is apostatizing finds absolutely no basis in the official decisions of the denomination, but the official decisions of the denomination expose that charge as a lie. The PRC is not apostatizing and taking on the marks of the false church by adopting false doctrine. As a denomination of true churches, the PRC maintains the second mark of a true church in the, in the maintenance of the sacraments and also in maintaining the third mark of a true church, which is the administration of Christian discipline. The PRC remains committed to the ecclesiastical discipline of impenitent sinners. It is not true that in deposing a minister in January, the PRC, through the consistory that carried out that deposition, murdered a righteous and blameless prophet of the Lord. To the Synod of the year 2021 came protests of that deposition and against the approval of it by Classes East and the synodical deputies of Classes West. And you can open up the Acts of Synod and read the Synod's body of work in answering protests and demonstrating that there were sins committed against multiple commandments and there must be repentance. I might add, <clears throat> excuse me, that if on that road to deposition there were sins committed against the now deposed pastor, that does not negate the grounds for deposition. And those sins, if there were sins, they can be dealt with in the right way. On the other hand, earlier in this history, there was a decision granting a minister release from the ministry according to Article 12 of the church order. And the PRC through that man's consistory did not fail to exercise the key of Christian discipline. Doctrinal error had been found in the man's preaching. And it was dealt with. It was acknowledged. The minister never said that I stand 100% behind everything I said and I will not take back one word. He acknowledged his errors. And the consistory and other ecclesiastical bodies that faced the matter made the fair judgment that the minister was not consciously, intentionally, deliberately teaching false doctrine. He was attempting to set forth the truth according to what he in a public exam acknowledged to be 
his reformed convictions, but in his blunders, the minister was demonstrating that he lacks the aptitude to teach. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he does not completely understand and is not able to communicate rightly certain concepts and relationships, and the church is judged. He's not, therefore, fit for the gospel ministry. To this day, the PRC remains committed to the third mark of the true church. As a denomination of true churches, the PRC has been embroiled in a doctrinal controversy, and it's important to understand a few things about controversy. First of all, controversies always test the church's patience, and they always take far longer than anyone would ever desire or expect. That is no excuse for sloth, for negligence, for wickedness. It's a fact of history according to the outworking of God's providence. And part of the explanation for that is every single person in the church, every single person is different and processes and absorbs and understands and works through and responds to doctrinal issues in a different way and at different speeds. And that a controversy draws out over time does not automatically mean that the church in which the controversy exists is an apostatizing church. Secondly, not only do controversies take time, but along the way there will be mistakes made and there will be sins committed because the church is made up of imperfect men. And that the church makes mistakes and sins and it might not even immediately recognize its own mistakes does not automatically make the church an apostatizing church. Should she refuse to correct her sins after they are plainly laid out before her, what really are her sins, then that's another story. Thirdly, in this particular controversy, it has become plain over time that there has been more than one error being voiced. It is a lie to state that the only error that has ever manifested itself is the threat to the unconditional covenant and the threat of compromising the gospel of grace by, for example, giving to our good works a place and function that they do not have, thus displacing the perfect works of Christ. Among other things, protests to synod in the last two years make plain there is another error surfacing out of what we might say the ditch on the other side of the proverbial path, and it's the error that denies the God-ordained order of salvation. So that if a man preaches that we enjoy God's merciful pardon in the way of repentance, because God has ordained repentance, as the way to pardon, because God forgives those who confess their sins, that 
that teaching is allegedly some form of a teaching of salvation by works. There is a fear of conditions that is so strong it's willing to ignore or deny or even turn around what God Himself has established and clearly revealed in the Scriptures. Now it's important to recognize that there have been errors out of what we might say both ditches on either side of the proverbial road because that creates a back and forth dynamic in the controversy. You might find an objectionable statement that contains or seems to contain doctrinal error and it's not necessarily arising out of a man whose theology is wrong. It might be, but not necessarily. It might be the case that the man is reacting and he's going overboard. He's overstating his position. For example, you might be able to find a statement by a minister and say that's antinomianism. As clear as the day, that is antinomianism. And you might be right. And there's no excuse for antinomian statements. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the man's theology is the theology of antinomianism. It might just mean he's reacting. He's overstating his position. He's going too far. And similarly, you might find a man who makes a statement, preaches a statement, and you say, that sounds like conditional theology. And maybe it is. And that's wrong. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the man's theology is wrong. It could be he's reacting. He's overstating his position. He's going too far. And maybe, God forbid, he's trying to rile people up. Which would be terrible. My point is not to justify doctrinal error. False doctrine is false doctrine and must be condemned. But my point is that in a controversy like this controversy, as it has developed, there has been the appearance of error coming out of what we might call both ditches on either side of the road. And that gives us a certain frame of reference in making judgments. And it ought to preclude us from arriving at exaggerated conclusions about a man or the church and keep us sober and careful in our judgments. The PRC is a denomination of true churches and not an apostatizing church whom the Lord, upon whom the Lord is reigning or will reign fiery destruction. Rather, this whole controversy and all the turmoil of it climaxing in the events of 2021 is God's work of chastening us in love. Our Father is chastening us. These very painful and unpleasant outworkings of His providence are chastisements. And like all chastisements, they are intended to inflict pain. As every parent and as every child knows, so that we groan and sigh, God is chastening us. 
And what was true for Job and can be true for you personally can be true ecclesiastically. When God chastens you, perhaps through adversity, He's not necessarily chasing you because you are stubbornly and impenitently continuing in some known gross sin, but simply because you are a sinner. You are imperfect. You do not love Him perfectly with all your heart. And even in your strongest spiritual state, you always have pride in your heart and a love for the world in your heart so that you and I always need correction. And the same thing is true ecclesiastically because the church is made up of sinners like you and me. And together, the members of the church, the the fervor and the ardor and the strength and the, the fire of our love for God, it does not burn as it ought in our hatred for that which God hates. It's never perfect. And even when our love for God is strong, it weakens, it wanes, and it diminishes and our love for the world grows. And that's wicked. It is wicked and sinful. And most of the time we are so foolish that we don't even necessarily recognize how much we're loving the world and not loving the Lord our God until we're chastened or after the chastisement and we look back and say with shame, we did not love the Lord our God as we ought to have loved Him. We have had it so good. People of God, we've had it so good for so long. Other churches have been forced underground in persecution, not the PRC. It's easy for us. Other churches have been losing generations of young people and closing the doors for the evening service or closing the doors all Sunday, not the PRC. Other churches have been infiltrated with the Federal Vision heresy, not the PRC. Other churches have been caving to the pressures of society and tolerating homosexuality, not the PRC. We've had it so good for so long materially and spiritually as God has prospered us. And then what happens? We become complacent. And we become too comfortable in this world. And we get so familiar with our Reformed doctrines, our very specific definition of the covenant. We know it. And then it loses its allure to us. And Bible studies become mechanical and dry and academic. And in subtle ways, we become arrogant in our theology. And we do suppose that we are immune to false doctrine. And we start losing our vigilance and losing our precision or our sharpness and become soft in the battle for the truth over against the lie and in the battle for a holy antithetical life. The world and the things of the world, they compete for the affections of our heart And pretty soon the world becomes more attractive to us than Jehovah God Himself and Christ and His glorious Gospel. And then there's the Bible and we read and we're always reading and reading all kinds of things, especially online. But then there's the Bible that often we're not in and reading and meditating upon and praying over the Bible and the sense of urgency can disappear. That pressing toward the mark and that striving after the crown that is incorruptible by beating down our body, keeping it in subjection, as the Apostle says. The hungering and the thirsting. Those are very strong words. The hungering and the thirsting after righteousness and the striving and suffering even unto blood. And then this could happen. 
that as a denomination we become dominated by individuals who do not have faith. Not at all. Or individuals whose faith is very weak and is not being strengthened and they're not living the daily life of conversion, but more and more and more people start turning away from God and without repentance, turning unto the world in love, and then the denomination departs from her first love. And she will intentionally and deliberately adopt false doctrine. And she will hold it up and say, this is the desire of our heart. And she will steadfastly refuse to discipline impenitent sinners and celebrate her tolerance of evil because the Lord loves us. We who sin against Him and do not love Him as we ought because He loves us, He chastens us by sending all this turmoil into our churches. God is not withdrawing his presence from the PRC. Chastening is a blessing of the covenant earned by Jesus Christ. God is drawing near to the PRC in his chastening love. He chastens us for the purpose of humbling us. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He chastens us to bring us to repentance. Go home and repent this night for not loving God as you ought to love God and for any other blemishes He may be exposing in this chastening and may be exposed later in this speech. He chastens us to wake us up. Wake up. He chastens us in love for the purpose of making us stronger in faith, in love, and in hope. And especially as we get closer and closer and so close to the day when all of the fury of Babylon and the apostate whore will be unleashed against God's precious church, against us and our children. God is strengthening us. Hebrews 12 Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. Do not despise God's chastening by laughing at His scourges or rods and becoming hardened in your heart and by saying all the sin is over there and not here. Some might do that and shame on them. Do not despise His chastening. And don't do that by murmuring against Him. Why do we have to go through this? And don't faint either and despair that there will never be rest, but only unrest. Don't faint. Verses 6-8, through For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For whom 
For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. How frightening if God would not chasten us. Are we even sons? Or are we a denomination of bastards? The very same love that elects and redeems is the love that chastens in Jesus Christ. And finally, verses 9-11, through furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Don't judge God's chastisements by your feelings because you will disdain them. They are grievous and they don't make sense. When you see families torn apart and and children and young people being separated... Grievous. Nevertheless, nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There is an afterward when the grievous pain relents and there is a great yield of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Do not forget the gospel. We deserve the scourges of hell. Every one of you and I deserve the stripes of God's wrath and punitive judgments for all our blemishes and spots and wrinkles and other such things, but God laid them all, all of them, on the head of the covenant our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore them and obtained righteousness for us. And now for Jesus' sake, God chastens us in love. As we examine ourselves in this chastening, how can we be more faithful? We'll come to that as the second part of the speech after we sing. Take out this altar and let's turn to number 71. We will rise to sing two psalter numbers. The first is number 71, stanzas 1, 4, and 5.
I was also asked to have us sing Psalter number 403. 403, all three stanzas. forward and examining ourselves in this chastening of the Lord, let us be more faithful. And I have five points I ask you to consider. More than that, I have, I have five points of exhortation. Number one, we must take full responsibility for our errors where we truly have sinned. Not where we've been wrongly accused, charged with sinning, but where we truly have sinned, truly were wrong, truly 
have erred, even, even where we've made a poor judgment and we should have made a better judgment, we may not defend ourselves in pride, but we must promptly and sincerely take full responsibility for what we have done. And even when we are involved in making a decision, maybe a very controversial decision, but we get to the point where we make a decision and it's the right decision according to the Word of God, if we've sinned along the way, if I have done or said something or you have done or said something in sin along the way, we have to confess that and own our transgressions. And we can't take the position that if I as a minister or if we as a consistory or we as a classist or a synod, if we acknowledge that we're wrong, then we'll play into the hands of critics who will run around and say, see, they're, they're wrong. I told you they're wrong and they're untrustworthy and henceforth and forevermore. You cannot trust them. Look at the wrong decision they made. The Bible never says confess your faults one to another. Unless you think someone won't forgive you and they'll hold it against you and they'll try to turn people against you, the Bible says confess your faults. And let's do that. Let's confess our faults. And if we sin in the pulpit, the very next Sunday, we need a public apology and the matter needs to be finished right there. How can people trust us if we sin and we know we sin, but we are too proud to acknowledge it? You have to examine yourself and I have to examine myself. Is God chastening us because we don't always own our errors as we ought? And now remember this, which is equally important. There have been confessions. Forgive. Forgive. Don't hold it against the brother or the body that erred and then confessed its error and don't beat and belittle and berate, but forgive as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. Secondly, I believe we need to be better and more faithful at directly engaging the controversial theological issues. And I'm speaking mostly to myself. I think of the major doctrinal decisions of Synod 2018. I think we could have done more to help explain them, lay them out for the people of God, for our hearts and minds. And I had an opportunity to do it. Because I was writing in a rubric, taking heed to the doctrine in the standard bearer, and I started writing on doctrine in the spring of 2019 while I was a pastor in Redlands, and I carefully weighed and carefully prayed before the Lord and came to the conclusion that I would not take the 2018 Acts of Synod and start quoting statements, quoting the erroneous statements, 
explaining the error of it, explaining the truth, but simply explain the major doctrines involved. Because I knew there was a protest or protest coming to Synod a month or two later and didn't want to interfere, but also for the sake of the individuals involved in writing in a rubric where I write every two to three months to take time to write on all these issues would probably take a couple, two, three years. And I didn't want to do that to those who had been in error, keep taking their error and laying it out and explain it had that been necessary. So I decided against doing that, but it could have been done and I should have done it earlier I did give a public lecture on the matter last fall, 2020, but it should have been done earlier. We, mostly I, must be more faithful at directly engaging the controversial doctrinal issues, and that would include, if necessary, even respectfully challenging any minister's teaching in public writings if I believe it is wrong. Why must we do this? Because theological issues concern the truth of God and what's more important for the church is the pillar and ground of the truth than the knowledge of God. And two, because this is our calling. I have been called as a teacher of doctrine to spell out the doctrine to God's people, lay out the truths and refute the error. And three, if we do not directly and polemically engage the relevant controversial theological issues, especially those that have been treated by synod, then there can be several harmful consequences. Number one, our silence could give the impression that these matters aren't even important to us. Or two, Our silence creates the potential for confusion and misunderstanding. We do esteem the office of all believer. And you can all take an Acts of Synod and open it up and read through the very specific decisions of Synod regarding doctrine and the answer of Synod. But we need to lay them out and spell them out for God's people. I need to do that. Three, our silence could create an opportunity perhaps for someone who might be opposed to the PRC to enter in, enter into the issue, and give an explanation and analysis of what the PRC decided which is not correct or is a misrepresentation. That could happen. And four, our silence potentially leaves the impression that healthy discussion of these matters is illegal when in fact the most important thing we could be doing in God's church is discussing in a brotherly manner, in a gracious and brotherly manner, the doctrines of the God whom we love. I know for myself personally God's purpose for me in ecclesiastical chastening. But what about you?
3, respecting doctrine. I am convinced there are two keys to doctrinal prosperity in the PRC. The first is that we must consciously do all our theology with our mind in the three forms of unity. The three forms of unity, the glorious Reformed confessions, set forth what is the orthodox Reformed faith. And we will quickly get ourselves into trouble when we stray outside the boundaries of the confessions. And then we'll end up with strange and heterodox statements that could come from either side, either ditch on either side of the proverbial straight and narrow path of orthodoxy. And yet at the same time, there's freedom in the confessions. There's freedom for careful development within the boundaries of the very rich language as the confessions bring together the main truths of Scripture. And secondly, that we do all of our theology from the all-comprehensive viewpoint of Romans 11, verse 36. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Then the cumulative effect of all theology and all teaching will be that God is exalted in the hearts of His people that you and I bow down before the living God in all of His greatness and glory as He's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. No one should be afraid of preaching the law. Preach the law and preach it sharply. Preach by making application. An application that goes right into the hearts, the lives, the homes of God's people. Preach what the Holy Spirit does within us. Preach regeneration and the wonder work of God that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Preach sanctification. Preach justification, of course. And preach that good works are dung with respect to justification. But preach sanctification and the beauty of godliness as God adorns us with the beauty of godliness. Preach good works and the benefit of good works, Lord's Day 32. Preach remission with God in the way of repentance and demand repentance. Preach the enjoyment of covenant fellowship with God in the way of obedience and demand obedience. Issue the call of the Gospel. Repent and believe and preach that God through that call, gives what He commands so that we do believe and we do repent and we do turn unto the Lord our God and we do find Him to be the joy of our heart and taste His mercy which is so good to us. Tasting that in our experience. And don't be afraid to preach these things. But let's do all of our theology, all of our teaching, and all of our preaching in such a way that it is all wrapped in and it is all infused by Romans 11, verse 36. Everything, especially in God's covenant, everything is of God 
and through God and to God. And then let us preach election. It is the fountain. Election. And let us preach Jesus Christ as the one and only head of the everlasting covenant of grace and that we are in Christ and that we have everything we need in the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we do not have need of one single work outside of Jesus Christ in His person and in His work for our salvation. Christ is our head and Savior. And let's preach God and teach God as He's revealed in Christ in all of His glory over against all opposition to the glory of our great God. There is no such thing as God and man side by side. There's no such thing as God in giving Him 100% and man in giving Him 100% and now God and man working together. There is no such thing as man and then God dependent upon man. But there's man. Here I am. And there you are. And we are so small. So, so small and insignificant and sinful besides. And there's God. God above us, below us, behind us, in front of us, ruling over us, in us. And as we live in His covenant, He never works in such a way that our rational, moral nature is violated. As we live in His covenant, we have a mind and a will and a heart. And by His Holy Spirit, we think and we will and we do according to the will of God. But it is all of God. And it is all through God. And it is all to God that all of the glory belongs to Him forever and ever. This is HH. You know it. I know it. This is our heritage of God, through God, and to God. And now if we can stay in the boundaries of the Reformed confessions, and if we can always have the viewpoint of Romans 11, verse 36, then from the viewpoint of the history of dogma, we live in exciting times. Because the Spirit always uses controversy to bring different aspects of a problem into the open. And then points the way, the solution to the problem so that our understanding of the truth is sharpened and developed. It was exactly, exactly ten years ago that Professor Engelsma urged all Reformed churches to renounce the federal vision and the doctrine of a conditional covenant of universal, resistible grace in favor of the unconditional covenant of grace with the elect alone. And then, he wrote, then all of us must do more. We must develop this doctrine of the covenant. We must develop it with regard to the demand of the covenant upon the members, with regard to the warnings, with regard to the full 
active life of the covenant with regard to covenant obedience and covenant unfaithfulness on the part of the covenant people with regard to the important part of the people of God in the covenant with regard to divine rewards and chastisements with regard to the genuine mutuality of the covenant. All of these aspects of the full reality of the covenant and more must be developed not in tension with election. Certainly not in contradiction of election, but in harmony with election as the very outworking of the eternal decree. And all those issues he mentioned 10 years ago are the very issues presently in controversy. If God will keep us by His grace in the Reformed confessions, and God will preserve this overarching perspective of Romans 11.36, and I will pound that into students as I pounded that into the older catechism students in Redlands every year, Romans 11.36, then the afterword of this chastening will include enriched doctrinal understanding. Fourth, we must strive as never before to be faithful in church government and in our calling to rule as office bearers. We've been accused of hierarchy, lording, abuse, favoritism, seeking the honor of men so that the whole system of government is corrupt. I reject that. And it certainly conflicts with my experience at Classis West from 2011 to 2019 and at Synod since 2017. Nevertheless, is there no truth to this charge? Have we been blameless? One of the more insightful comments I once heard came from an older widow who said that the only thing in the whole world for a human being living on the earth, the only thing that is worse than plagues, disease, pestilence, war, famine, fire, flood, earthquake, and everything else is corrupt government. If the government becomes corrupt and it abuses its power, you have no recourse and it can make your life, man then can make your life more miserable than any calamity. And those who live under cruel regimes and communist dictators experience that. Is the Lord chastening us so that we examine ourselves with regard to church government? What can we do? Well, first, let's start with the basics and let's study and grow and read 
and read, and especially young men and men with a view to serving in church office, read. Young men, read. Read with discernment. Read that which is edifying, but read. And look at the wealth of resources that we have thanks to the RFPA. Read. We need background knowledge to be able to serve effectively in matters of doctrine and life. How can an elder oversee the minister's preaching if he, if he doesn't read and he doesn't know the Reformed faith? And how can an office bearer contribute to deliberations on some scandal in a marriage if he doesn't know the doctrine of marriage? Read, little by little, slowly but surely, a few passages and a few pages a night. Read. And now I want to take this opportunity that has been given to me tonight to make special mention of abuse. Very often, office bearers are not well educated in the dynamics of abuse. Physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual. Whether the issue is a domineering office bearer who's lording and manipulating the consistory and congregation, or husbands who violently abuse their wives, or predators preying on young men and women, abusing them sexually. We need knowledge. And I don't make this point because I believe there is a great plague running out of control, but because abuse happens probably more than we realize. And I have made bad judgments. And that tears at my heart. Most of us do not understand, number one, how skillful abusers are in the art of manipulation. We don't understand. And if an abuser is allowed to work his craft, he can turn an entire consistory into his fiddle. And he can play on that fiddle any tune he wants. And he can get everyone to dance to his tune. And you might say I'm exaggerating, and I would say you're ignorant. Two, ordinarily we know almost nothing about how extensive and profound and long-lasting is the trauma of victims of abuse. I don't understand that. I don't. And three, ordinarily, we know very little about what steps to take when, rebuse, when abuse is reported. I didn't. When we mishandle abuse, then the victims suffer even more, but worse than that, the perpetrator is allowed to continue in impenitence, and that's the road to hell. Now, a step back, the main point here under church government is we need to study, we need to grow in knowledge of doctrine in church history and church polity and life. And when it comes to abuse, there are all kinds of resources, all kinds of books and literature and podcasts. And how foolish 
if we refuse instruction and ever adopt the attitude on any particular issue that I know what I'm doing, I know. What I know is I don't know. I don't know very much. We need to grow in knowledge. Secondly, with regard to church government, let's exercise great faithfulness in overseeing our minister's preaching. The most important event that happens on the face of the earth happens on Sunday when the congregation is gathered for public worship and the minister stands behind the pulpit and he opens up the Word of God and he says, Thus saith the Lord. That's the greatest moment in the world. And if our minister keeps fumbling his way through critical doctrinal relations or he makes strange and ambiguous statements and he keeps raising red flags or he's forthrightly preaching false doctrine or he's he's just not sounding. You, You can discern it. He's not sounding forth the pure note of the Gospel. Or he won't preach certain things. Maybe he won't preach the law. He won't preach the command, you must love your wife. We have to do something. If there really is a problem with the preaching and we know it and people are meekly, humbly voicing their concerns. We can't say he's the minister, he's been trained, or he's older, he's experienced, he probably won't receive instruction from us anyways. We have to find a way as best we can to remedy the problem. It concerns the most important thing in the world. And if someone comes to me and says, Reverend Professor Heisinger, I've been listening to your sermons as you preach here for the last three, four months, you don't preach Christ. I may not respond, who do you think you are? Get out of here. Or for a little while, fake some humility and act like I'm interested and then walk off. Who do you think you are? My first response must be, if you are correct... Woe be unto me if I am not preaching Jesus Christ. And my second response must be, please explain to me. Tell me, show me. And maybe they explain. Yeah, you named the name of Christ a few times here and there, but His person and His work, you're not preaching Him. Or maybe they say, you preach man. And they're wrong. What they mean by that is you, you preach the calling of believers in the covenant and that's supposedly preaching man and therefore necessarily you don't preach Christ. Maybe they have a point. Maybe they don't. But in humility, I need to listen. Thankfully, the prevailing testimony in the churches is that the pure doctrine of the Gospel is faithfully sounded week by week. And third, let us redouble our efforts to honor the sacred right of protest. We must respect every Protestant. We must judge righteously and never judge on the basis 
of the person, whether we like and respect him or not. We should wear blindfolds so that we can't see the name on the document. We don't know who wrote it. We may never mistreat anyone. And if at all possible, we want to declare that the protest is legal and treat it, if it's possible. And if the protest only needs a simple response, then we give it a, we, we give it a simple response. If it needs a long, thorough response, then we give it a thorough response and as promptly as possible so that the patient person doesn't groan. Is nothing being done? Don't you care about what I have brought? Don't you take me seriously? And the broad point here is that God's people have a voice and we can't silence that voice. So let's be determined to prevent abuse in positions of authority and find ways to examine ourselves to make sure that we're not, that we are ruling righteously for God and not for man. The form for the installation of elders and deacons quotes 1 Timothy 5, verse 7, the elders that rule well shall be counted worthy of double honor. Rule well. And then the form quotes Romans 12, verse 8, he that ruleth, let him do it with diligence. And the Greek word translated diligence has as its first meaning haste. As used in Luke 1, verse 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. So that when we have work to do, we get to it. Now flip the coin. You promised. And God heard you. You promised. You said yes at your confession of faith. I will submit to church government. You must submit to church government. Whether you are a 75-year-old man or a 35-year-old minister, submit to church government. We have rebels running pell-mell through the streets of America, breaking every law and shouting up to the heavens that the whole structure is corrupt. It's dominated by oppressive, heterosexual, conservative, white Christian males, and it all needs to be turned upside down. And God forbid that attitude comes into the church and every man runs around doing what is right in his own eyes, conniving, and engaging in schismatic behavior, dismissing the consistory, agitating against the consistory's decisions, openly mocking the consistory, you said yes. And God heard you. I will submit to church government. The assemblies are not broken that an assembly did not sustain a protest or even multiple protests on the same issue does not automatically mean that the assemblies are broken. It does mean the Protestant didn't prove his case. 
That an assembly ruled a protest illegal does not necessarily mean the assembly is corrupt. It means the protest doesn't have the right to be here. That an assembly erred does not automatically mean assemblies are corrupt. It means the individuals who make up the body are weak sinners. So a word to Protestants, concerned individuals, follow the rules. That's first of all, the word to consistories, follow the rules, but then to concerned individuals, don't cry abuse if you're breaking the rules which are established for the maintenance of decency and good order. Follow the rules and be patient. If the word to consistories is get on it, then the word to Protestants is be patient so that the men can carefully and wisely work through the issues amid all the other demands that they have. Let me add this too, which I learned from an elder in these matters. The rule of the five B's one, two, three, four, five. Five B's. Be brief, brother. Be brief. Fifth, and finally, let us give thanks for what we have. The PRC is worthy of fair criticisms. And we must sincerely humble ourselves and as individuals examine ourselves and repent of our sins. But we are living in a day in which the language that is being used to condemn the PRC is appalling and on a stunning trajectory. And the concern is that you don't turn away, but drink glass after glass after glass and your attitude changes and God blinds you to everything God has given to us in the PRC so that you're not thankful. So that you don't have any gratitude. And if we despise God's gifts in ingratitude, He will take them away. We have a lot to be thankful for. Give thanks for the youth. One of the benefits of no large denominational convention this past summer is that most of the churches were able to participate, participate in smaller regional conventions which allowed for fellowship that was more intimate. And about all those conventions that were held throughout the country the word was said over and over, we are so blessed by God. How can it be that we live in this very perilous age of wickedness, especially for youth, and youth, they have these smartphones, and in this very age, our youth have such depth of understanding of doctrine and such spiritual maturity. There will always be rebellious youth. But overall, the level of spiritual awareness and maturity in the youth is of a higher caliber, I believe, than my generation when we were that age. This is the work of God in these last days. 
And speaking of youth, give thanks for all of the young ministers that God has given to us. And I think of those younger than I am. Faithful, capable young ministers. They're watching and listening and asking questions and growing and leading and going through the fires. And God will use them mightily now and in the future for the good of the PRC as as their preaching sharpens. And that should be true of all of us. And as God increases our faithfulness. And then speaking of the youth, what about all the schools that God has given to us as Protestant Reformed people? We don't understand what it takes to operate these schools so that they do everything they do in the name of Reformed Christian education for the Lord our God. We don't understand what it takes from January 1 to December 31 every single day around the clock. I don't. You don't. The principal doesn't. How, how so many in the, the PRC constituency are laboring and always rallying when there's a need, but laboring for the cause of our schools. God knows because it's His work. And don't stop thanking Him. And for those who faithfully labor. And give thanks for your office bearers. And tell them the amount of time our office bearers have spent. They're not perfect. The amount of time they've spent dealing with and agonizing over the most challenging issues, it's staggering. And they're not the offspring of Satan. They are the servants of the Lord whom God is using And please, please keep praying for the seminary. Please pray for the seminary. This list could go on and on, but I will wrap it up and say give thanks to God for what He has already done through this chastening to strengthen us. He has preserved the Holy Gospel among us, but may He preserve it and against threats to it And people are reading, reading as they have not read before. People are weary of contention. They're weary of unedifying arguments. But there is a renewed desire to learn doctrine and to grow and to be sharpened. And everywhere I go, I do hear people acknowledge we want to correct our weaknesses. We want to be more faithful. Let's be more faithful and endeavor together. In the spring of 2020, I recall I was driving down the road one Saturday morning and listening to Wood AM 1300 to the Fruit Basket Flowerland Show. And a lady called in and said, Rick, I have this this great, beautiful trumpet vine, nice and green. It won't flower. And Rick Weiss said, you're too nice. What? What? You're too nice. Go get a board. Hold it up to the vine and start wailing on that board with your hammer. And go get your shovel and start digging up, digging at the roots underneath the topsoil. You need to put stress on your vine. And when you put stress on your vine, then that signals to the vine, I want to reproduce. And in order to reproduce, then it will make flowers. It will make seeds 
and make flowers and your vine will flower. The stress, painful, grievous, but God in His love chastens and puts stress for the purpose of making us more fruitful. I love the PRC. The God, the Gospel, and the people. And I know many in classes East and classes West. I love them. And now more than ever, and I have one goal with this speech, and that is that the PRC be more faithful that I be more faithful and that you be more faithful and may God grant it. Now be gracious. Be gracious. Stand at the foot of the cross and behold your God and his wondrous infinite love and grace in Jesus Christ. Be gracious and walk in the way of grace and truth. I thank you for your attention.